Hello, welcome to Unsourcewall, and as always, my name is Elvis, and I am your host. Alright, so this is yet again a surprisingly packed week in terms of releases, so I hope you guys bear with me. We're going to be getting to that. I just want to get into the news right now because there has been a lot of incredibly, incredibly just awful stuff that I think we need to go over. And the first thing first is, well, as it turns out, that the writer for Border Town, Eric M. Esquivel, has been accused of multiple instances of sexual abuse and assault. And that's just awful. It really is. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever had to read. And I have actually gone into this and I've checked out the testimonies and the anecdotes of so many people who are coming forward. And it is just horrendous. It is horrible. It's terrible. It's stomach churning. I feel physically revulsed by this, that people can get away with this kind of shit. And I just hope the best for the people who had to suffer this, his victims, the people who have been carrying this pain and trauma around it. And I hope that they find some closure and some peace and justice here because they honestly deserve it. I do want to talk a little bit about though, just the entirety of this book and really what I'm seeing being played out on comic Twitter and on Hispanic Latino comic Twitter surrounding this case, surrounding the impact of this news on this comic and how people are reacting to it. Because one of the first things I started seeing was a lot of people going out and saying this book is dropped or this book is over for me and something like that but that really did get me upset because if we're being completely honest this book wasn't good it was never good I know I kept trying to give it the benefit of the doubt because it had like maybe a little bit of plot in the first issue or like okay I can see it maybe he'll develop maybe that'll become more important but by the second issue it was even worse and by the third issue it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever read in a comic that's meant to be exclaiming and praising and pushing forward Latino culture and comics and it was just the most fucking terrible thing I ever read so a lot of people were saying like this book is cancelled because of this because of something so completely awful that they finally have the gall to actually drop something that is just pure garbage writing. It gets me just so angry and just so like, oh my god, really? That's what it took? That's what it took for you to actually start taking this as an actual thing you have to have a critical lens for? This horrible thing that happened to these people and then you're using that as like, I'm making a stand? I'm making an ethical, moral grandstand by dropping this book because of this like no fuck that that's awful so first reactions really did get me amazingly tight and it is continuing to be awful so I had to say my own piece on it and honestly one of the things that I came away with is that I know that this book meant something to people and that's what gets me most angry and most enraged and just most disgusted about all of this is because of how Eric M. Mescavel. And if you followed his Twitter or Ramon Villalobos' Twitter, you've known what they've been doing. You've known that they've been trying to really push the cultural and political relevance of this book. They've been saying it's going to cure racism. It's going to uplift people. It's going to give you a religious experience. It's going to shatter the conservative minority hating racists. And it's like, what the fuck? And that's one of the first things that got me so incredulous about this book got me so kind of like I don't think they know what they're doing because that happens so many times you're writing on something for the purpose of getting all these brownie points and getting people on your side even if you don't have to do anything worthwhile and the messed up thing is that it works people desperately want something that they can push forward they want something that speaks out to them that speaks out to their community that speaks out to their culture that is meant to be on their side especially in times like this they, they want something to believe in and so that's what they did they tried to push themselves as that thing as that one glorious latino hope like this is the book 
this is the book for you. And it wasn't. It was garbage. It was shit. It was just the most complete trash I ever read. I would say go out and read number three, but I think a lot of people are starting to stop stalking it. And I wouldn't wish reading that particular issue on my worst enemy. But that's the thing, right? Is that a lot of people did believe in this. They bought the hype and they felt regardless of whatever actual quality this series had, that it was worth it because it was the one thing that they could believe in. You have people, and I'm talking about actual people that I've seen, their tweets, their belief, their praise of it, saying that this should be taught in schools. A teacher, I think a professor at an actual university, tweeting out that she's going to be using this in her Latino fiction and community class. I think a liberal arts class. I'm like, And my reaction to that was like, wow, I mean, it's crap, but these people are really sort of honing around it. And that's a beautiful thing. They shouldn't have their their trust and their faith destroyed like this because the thing is that it was crap and now that everyone sees that it's crap and that they're seeing it because of this even more horrific thing that's going on it's that they position themselves in a place where it makes them a lightning rod and the lightning rod was focused in first and foremost immediately on something that was just garbage and now it's focused again on something where the offer was a horrible piece of shit and it just makes them so vulnerable it makes community vulnerable it makes this this entire ideology and philosophy vulnerable and you know what the most disturbing thing is is that when i voiced these opinions online one of the people who actually liked them was some comic skater motherfucker and that's weird that's really weird that shouldn't happen you know i shouldn't have the attention of these people just for saying the actuality the reality that this book was horrible but that's the thing. You have this comic that really tried to sell itself on this ideal. And it just makes everything weaker. It makes us weaker. And it makes the community weaker. And so, yeah, that's sad. That's sad that a lot of people, they believed in it. And they want to have faith in it. They wanted it to succeed. And now they're shattered. They can't have this anymore. And I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming their naivety. I'm not blaming their innocence about this. I'm blaming the people who are riding on the coattails. I'm blaming Marvel's America. I'm blaming Border Town. I'm blaming all these motherfuckers who think that they can ride the high of easy acclaim and easy praise. But if I had to say anything, if I had to give a little word of warning, it would be that voting with your wallet shouldn't be a blind act. And if you heard that term before, you know that means that you put your money where your heart, where your mouth is. You put your money where you believe it should be doing the most work. And that's where these comics, America and Border Town and all that shit, they thrive on that because they sell themselves on this sort of basis that they're going to be shaking up the world, that they're doing the best for the community. And so people, of course, will be like, yes, I want to give them my money. I might not like it or or I'm going to delude myself into liking it because I think I should like it because it's going to be doing so much on a net gain. But that's the wrong way to go about it. It should be something that you really do enjoy, that you have to actively be enjoying and that your life is better. Your life has more joy and more fun and just a lot more engagement because it's in it, because you experienced it, not because of anybody else or anything else. And I never want to talk about this comic again. And I feel disgusted by having the first physical issue in my house. But I keep it as a reminder to never buy anything that I don't believe in, which I should have known, which I should have known. Anyway, that's it for that. I talked way too long about this. Let's move on into a little bit more easygoing news. How about that? In terms of movie news, one of the most interesting stories to break all week has been that apparently Legendary has optioned the rights to the Toxic Avenger, which if you don't know, I talked about it before, but it is the premier headlining mascot slash superhero for Troma Entertainment. It's one of their most recognizable, famous, iconic movies. 
It spawned three sequels, a toy line, a cartoon, a comic, and a musical. So it's kind of had a long lifeline. And the attempts at a remake have been going on for years now. They have never come to fruition, mainly because Troma Entertainment and Lloyd Kaufman have a particular vision and they want their property and character treated with that sort of atmosphere and flair that they are used to. So I don't really think that this is going to go anywhere. But if you're out there in Hollywood, I I will play Bozo or Slug for free. Speaking of trauma, it turns out that we have gotten the first official trailer for that untitled, unknown, mysterious James Gunn movie that was meant to be announced during Comic-Con when the entire scandal surrounding him happened. It's apparently called Brightburn, and from the looks of the first trailer, it's an Ultraman movie. And no, I don't mean the Japanese superhero, I mean the supervillain from the Antimatter Earth 3 universe, the evil counterpart to Superman. It reuses the exact same superhero Superman origin except the kid is evil but the downside is that we're getting a lot of think pieces about people saying that this is yet another Superman deconstruction or we don't need another dark message about Superman which I think is the wrong way to look about it I don't think Brightburn from the trailer it looks really flat and it looks really uninteresting but it's not really a message on Superman it's just what if the kid was evil that's not something you have to really dissect so you know fingers crossed Moving on to TV news, we have a lot more news from DC Universe's streaming service. Like, first to come down the pipe was casting for Blue Devil, who will be appearing on Swamp Thing. We even have this promo image that's a fake mock-up poster for a Blue Devil movie, which is hilarious, and you can see the villain on it too, who I guess is a woman, but she has the same exact kind of color scheme, and I think Cowl as Bible Man, which is brilliant, I love it. Who would have thought that this would be the first promo image from Swamp Thing, but it's amazing, and I posted on my Twitter, you can try and find it. So yeah, the actor is Ian Ziering. I have no idea what he's been in, but hopefully he does a good job because that is pretty great. And finally, we have some indications that just like Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing is going to be very evocative, a lot of stuff. So fingers crossed. The other casting news is completely centered around Stargirl because we have pretty much the entirety of the JSA already coming down the pipeline. We have Joel McHale as Sidney Pemberton aka the star spangled kid although he is being called starman which isn't the first time that's happened i know that's happened in smallville and so on so hopefully it doesn't preclude any knights from showing up i know that james robinson is writing this show as well so hopefully we would see some knights but i think that it'll be fine if they play more comedically so that's happening we also have lou ferrigno jr playing our man we've also got casting for wildcat i don't really know who the actor is but their name is brian staff and apparently he was on the walking dead so good luck to all of them like seriously good luck it's pretty great i hope we get to see more of the jsa we see hawkman i hope we see the specter i hope we see jay and alan come on bring them on alongside the younger generation too give me cyclone give me adam smasher give me all of them so yeah fingers crossed for that so that's really great i think the last thing in terms of tv news is that we have the first trailer for the umbrella academy based on gerard Ways's comic and it looks pretty okay it kind of reminds me of misfits which is kind of funny because robert sheehan who was on misfits is in this as well the trailer is really just more or less introducing the characters with quick shots give it some mood give it some personality give it some attitude and it looks like it might be fun i'll be on the lookout for that fingers crossed 
And well, I guess the only other thing is that apparently the CW is doing Crisis on Infinite Earths for their next crossover event next year, which is almost assuredly going to be complete crap. Let's not waste any time on that. Moving on to comic news, I guess, I mean, I already talked about the one thing that was truly on my mind and that was something that I really want to talk about at the very start. And there's really nothing to talk about elsewhere here that I can't talk about in my reviews. So let's move on into that right now anyway. Time for what I read this week. And like I said, it's been kind of a long week, just like last week. I don't know where these weeks are coming from, but I'm glad, I really am glad that I have so much to talk about. But like last week, we're gonna make this some kind of quick shots because we do have some other things to move on into. Time for some quick shots. Let's move on with Hawkman number seven, which is once again, another origin story for Carter and the entirety of the Hawk people here, where we have this push toward a huge meta origin that tries to encapsulate and tries to focus as an umbrella over all other origins and incarnations. So we start off at the very beginning, once upon a time, and it turns out that Hawkman has New 52 Phantom Stranger's origin, which is that he did a lot of bad stuff, but he's been given a second chance by God in order to atone. And his atonement is to save as many lives as he helped kill because he was the genocidal interplanetary warlord who killed trillions upon trillions. Well, I mean, it's standard. What I've liked about this series is that it simplifies a lot of stuff. It's such a simple kind of story and it's great. It's nice. It's comfortable read. But the fact of the matter is that everything else is just so simple, so kind of standard, so kind of like uniform and just consistent that the origin could have been a little bit more complex. It could have been a little bit more unique, a little bit more creative because you wouldn't lose coherency about that. But this just seems so face run and it seems just so bland and flat. He has a people called Deathbringers and his name was Katar and apparently Hawkwoman is an angel or an avatar of God which has its own kind of problems. I think it's neat. I think it's kind of fun. I'm a sucker for this kind of romantic binding and tethering that works like that but it does run into the problem where if she's like a real literal kind of angel, then you could unfortunately end up having her be totemic to Carter and to the story which is a kind of a disservice. Better writers in Mendetti have done something similar to other characters and failed out, so fingers crossed for that. I did enjoy the issue, but I do think it's very kind of flat in terms of something that is hoping to be the long-standing origin for a character. That's what I want. I want some more dimension. Alright, moving on into Captain Ginger number three, which is an enjoyably terse and tense issue that does a great job opening up the conflict and the stakes, but it does feel like the joke of the series is starting to grow stale. It's becoming a little bit more easier to gloss over and glaze over the parts that are centered and just sort of bouncing off that, which is a shame, it really is. But the new elements that are introduced in this issue, which are pretty interesting, really do work. And they do give the series, well, like I said about Hawkman, that these elements do give this series a lot more added dimension, just something that fills it out a bit more, makes it feel a bit more substantial, which is always appreciated. All right, so next up is Scooby Apocalypse number 32, which is a series that just continues to surprise me in both the good and the bad and the just bizarre. It never feels like I'm gonna get off the roller coaster ride of reading this. It's such a thrill. I can never expect or know or predict what will come out of the characters' mouths. In this one, you have, of course, Shaggy and Velma. They're having a kid together. And Fred is the mouth of some nanite horde. Oh, also, Velma's ultra edgy brother comes out like the smoothest wannabe cool motherfucker and says that he's a militant atheist. And it's like the most ridiculous thing ever. I am in shock. My mouth dropped. But I can't say that it's not entertaining because the series is going all 
all kinds of different directions, and I can't say that I won't miss it. Next up is Mage to Hero Denied number 14, which is the penultimate issue, but it doesn't feel very exciting or engaging. Outside of a few panels near the end, the previous issue, number 13, felt like there was a lot of momentum, that things were finally coalescing, that things were rolling, that you were in the shit, but this one doesn't really capitalize on it. It doesn't. It feels like we're just stalling her time a lot more. So I'm still excited about the final issue because this one does have some punches to, you know, actually hit. But the rest of it just feels like biding time, which I thought we were over with at this point. But apparently we're not. Hopefully it'll read better in full when it's all over. But I have to give this a little bit more of a eh kind of rating. All right. So after that, we have Sideways number 11, which is the issue before the final issue, which is the issue before the epilogue. Sideways number 11 is much like the Hero to Night number 14. You had a previous issue, which felt like things were finally sort of coming together that you felt kind of invested in. And then you have an issue like this, which is just so middling and it's kind of expository. And it's only focused on getting the characters where they have to be in the most forthright ways that it just feels really hard to be invested, engaged, or really sort of suspensed by. So yeah, you know, it's, it's still okay. I like Rockefeller's art. I nearly thought the dialogue was bad, but it does just get a lot more explainy and it's focused more on where the plot has to be than anything else, which is the Bledge Sword. But this one is one they could have done without. All right, so next up we have Electric Warriors number two, which I am dropping after this issue because I tried reading this two or three times and I could not make heads or tails of it. I mean, I just got so bored in the middle of reading anything about this. I tried doing my best here and I could not tell you what character did what, what was introduced outside of maybe the final couple of pages where it turns out that they have to fight each other. But the rest of it is a blank. It's a blur. It's a really boring book and I'm not invested in it at all. It's dropped two thumbs down. Next up is Damn Comics number two by The Great Illuminated. This is the second installment of their anthology. I'll link everything below. And well, I really, really enjoyed this one. A little bit more again on Hero Maker. I think there's so much great stuff going on in Hero Maker and I'm just so familiar with it already that I'm just welcoming it as like, yes, another one, I can't wait. But with now, I am definitely starting to see a lot more of the substantiality around it. It isn't say as much of a kind of mind bending or sort of perspective twisting outing as the initial first volley but it is something that still has so much attitude and style and it really just grabs your attention from the front that you really are sucked into this really engaging and enticing hyper reality that it's hard to really deny that it's insanely insanely aggressive and exciting and desperately want to be a thrill ride and hopefully that does develop a little bit more there are some pages where i thought it kind of felt like could have used to be more of the amping up, but there are some other really, really insanely like inventive pages as well. So it's a bit of a toss up. I'm still trying to get a feel for it. But so far, like I said last time, it is still just a good melange of attitudes and experiences because you have one where you have like the punchline is something akin to like a really great SpongeBob sort of cutaway gag and exuberance about it. And then you have this really sort of aggressive and violent and just moody and just bursting free sort of tone and dark and pitch black and white sort of stuff. So it's 
honestly nice to have both it's a it's in this and that but like i said i think that now i'll still have a little bit more to go before i am totally sucked into it but i'm really glad that it's still able to have such a kinetic and such a unforgettable style and way of expressing itself while also not losing anything that you can really grab onto as plot and a story which i was kind of worried about the first time it was such a unique way of presenting a first sort of introduction but yeah no two thumbs up and i can't wait to read more i really can't all right so last but not least or maybe it is least who knows is the magic order number five and well i guess this issue really sort of sold me on this series again because i was really bored the last couple of issues because it was feeling so boring and it felt so safe and it felt so predictable which is all things you can say about Millar but usually even in stuff that he does really badly if he's not going to be sentimental which he does really excellently I will say that the sentimental stuff he does in the series that give it an extra kind of human moment is really worth it at times this doesn't have any of that it hasn't had any of that for a long time at all even but this one goes the other way around where it does this really cheap and whacked out and ridiculous stupid little twist that just makes me grin because it's such a stupid fucking twist. It's such a little gimme twist, isn't it? But it's so whacked out and out of left field and dumb that in sort of a kick-ass kind of way, I'm on board because hell, at least it has some life again. So, you know, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the silliness of it. I enjoyed just sort of weird and awkward nature it was implemented in. Two thumbs down, but two thumbs up anyway. All right, so before I forget, there are actually some things that I wanted to bring up with what I read this week, which happened to be the launch of this new publisher called TKO, which was pretty interesting because what they did was that they had all of these different series backlogged up, full minis, full six issues, everything, and they gave away all of the first issues of these things for free, and they put purchasing tiers for the entire series, issue per issue, in print, and so on. And there were two series that I was really interested in. One was the one I mentioned last last week which was the first issue of that Garth Ennis Steve Epting book called Sarah about the sniper during World War II and another one was this book called Good Night Paradise written by Joshua Dreisart and Alberto Ponticelli. I was more interested in Ponticelli I want to get out based on that alone. Now to go over these two Sarah was a pretty decent first issue. I think it's a bit dry. I think that both of these are a bit dry but Sarah is able to play with it a lot more because of the harsher conditions and environment and characters and the situation as a whole sort of command that dryness and if anyone can do like dry clinical military and thinking through the characters of those comics it's Ennis he does it so well and it does set the mood and the tone so much that you really do get enveloped and engrossed in it. I really enjoyed it. It's probably not my favorite of his war comics so far. It's probably just kind of more middling in comparison, but outside of comparison, it's exceedingly really well done. And Epting's art does set a lot of the harsh and solitary nature of the job that the characters need to go out through. Hopefully the rest of the mini does catapult it a bit some more. Fingers crossed, but still two thumbs up. Good Night Paradise, though, is a bit more of an odd duck out. I don't think it really does anything too strenuous. It's a bit muddled. And I think that while it does have a good core premise, it takes so long to set up that it's dry in the bad way where it's more ponderous. It's more sort of relaxed and belabored. Belabored is a good word. And it's hard to really get into or invest in it, honestly. 
even up until the last couple of pages, I was wondering, okay, so what am I really supposed to cling on to and really sort of feel emotive about? So yeah, thumb middle, thumb down, because the art is still really good, and I can see that's actually developing somewhere, but the first issue was just a real letdown. So yeah, TKO, they have a lot more books. They've signed Jeff Lemire and everything, so hopefully we see a lot better things from them as we go along. Finally, we can move on into what I watched this week. And we finally have something other than just Titans, which is the winter special or the Yuletide special of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So I'll talk about that first. Now, as I've said before, and I went on length about, I am not a fan of this series. I think it's really, really crap. Although I did say that the last half of that first season did pick up. And this Christmas special follows that trend a little bit. It doesn't have anything that is really annoying about it. It's just a simple one and done episode. And let me just lay it out for you. All right, so we have Sabrina, who is the worst character in this episode because she is just ridiculous. And the writing around her makes my mind boggle because we have her trying to have a seance for her dead mother who she saw in purgatory warning her against the witches it was the most blatant warning too like hey get away from the witches they killed my baby get away from them all them witches you know that whole rosemary's baby ripoff spiel and yet she's like she was saying something i need to find out what she was saying she told you like point blank can you speak english she wasn't speaking in some sort of code she was saying the witches are evil and so you have madam satan who's her mentor who's evil can you believe that hears about this realizes that the mother could tell her the truth about the evil witches which of course they're evil and yet she makes a gingerbread house and all we see her do is eat cookies beside it the entire episode it's like a framing device like did the gingerbread house have anything to do with the episode I mean, it's implied that she let one of the villains in, which are these gaggle of orphan Christmas-themed kid ghosts that wreck havoc. But other than that, what was her plan? She doesn't seem to have a plan specifically in order to ward off Sabrina from listening to her mother's cries because then the mother turns out to say, oh yeah, witches are good. Unless that was her in disguise, but she's still eating cookies by the gingerbread house at the end of episode two. So who the fuck knows? Now, the other stuff is about this demon who kidnaps kids dressed as elves and pours hot wax over them to make them into living dolls. And one of Sabrina's friends gets captured by them. And that's pretty entertaining stuff. That's a nice Christmas episode style stuff. And I enjoyed the hell out of that. And it was the least irritating part of the episode. We also have Harvey again, who is the most boring character Still, but I do like that he's making a hardline stance against magic because it's something. It's not just him like, I'm an artist, I'm deep, I'm sensitive, bullshit. Because now he has some actual dynamics set against Sabrina and her family and her entire sort of community. It's nice. And if they want to do some more romantic shit, now they have an obstacle. Now they have something that they both can overcome. And that's where romantic magic happens. That's really what you need to do. A lot of it was boring, a lot of it I still wouldn't call good, but it wasn't as bad as the first half of the first season, and it did have some entertaining moments. But I am still wondering what the hell is going on with the mother. Is Sabrina still really dense that she really couldn't understand the warnings against the witches? And a whole bunch of other stuff that I guess doesn't need to be explained, so I won't bring it up here. One thumb down, one thumb middle, because it's still not good, but it's watchable. Take that as you will. Moving along into Titans, we finally have the penultimate episode of the first season. It's called Coriander, and it's not really about Starfire, although we do learn pretty much the nitty gritty stuff about Starfire's origins in this show. Now, this episode has, similarly to the 
Sabrina Christmas special. A lot of things that don't really get explained and a lot of questions that I have pertaining to why things are the way they are because they don't really gel together that well. But it's also a hell of a lot more entertaining because while some characters are in the dark about stuff and you can call that kind of meandering or the characters kind of dimwitted, it does keep to a certain kind of genre standpoint. And what I mean is that this episode really does go full hog with that antichrist demon worshipping Satan cultist horror genre bent it really does and i enjoyed the heck out of it perhaps the weakest angle about this episode is the starfire origin stuff because that's where all the questions i have come from like why does starfire have an ancient book why did her planet have an ancient book about a prophecy that was going to happen thousands of years in the future to their planet but would only be relevant to earth and why would trigon being on earth then have a prophecy on tamaran of their destruction I mean, if there was a prophecy going on, why wouldn't it be just described as a general universal destruction? Why their planet specifically? Because she even mentions that the moment that Trigon gets his powers, he's going to destroy Earth first. So why have that prophecy? I mean, it's kind of baffling, but it doesn't get in the way of the story at all. Because the story, the meat of the story is that Raven's at home, she has her mom, and they're laying low. And Starfire has to figure some stuff out because at the end of the episode, before the Hawk and Dove filler episode, which doesn't come into play here at all, she kind of attacked Raven and she ran off because she's ashamed and she needs to find out the truth about Ship, which is all good and fine. And so we have Raven who's emotionally shaken, emotionally vulnerable, getting manipulated into releasing Trigon. And it turns out that her mother is a devout cultist and that everything that happened, the asylum, was all planned. Now obviously there is the faction that trying to kill her because they know about it, but it seems is that the cultists took advantage of the fact that her life was in peril in order to set up this false flag operation where they could make it seem like her mother was on her side and that her mother was in exile too. That's kind of fun. That's kind of an interesting reveal. And it does play into the fact that Raven is just so like alone in this instance. Robin and Donna Troy are off with Starfire trying to help her and Raven is left alone with a woman that she has unconditional love for and unconditional trust for and she is just in peril like mentally and emotionally which is probably the worst situation this character can be in given the turmoil that she's been in throughout the season. It was pretty engaging. It was pretty exciting too. And while you see a lot of it coming, it still plays itself relatively straight. So there's no kind of winking nature at it except for one moment which I think was still a really fun moment. It feels like you're watching a horror movie and it might not be the greatest horror movie but it's a horror movie that's trying its best. For the most part. Now what I'm getting at there is that they do a really great job setting up this dread atmosphere or at least dread for our superhero show and something a little bit more kind of eerie and odd and just kind of suspenseful where you have finally Raven succumbing to her mother's manipulations and in a beat that is obviously homaging Prince of Darkness you have the son of this devil character reaching into a mirror to release their father right and it's so well done the actors like I said this actress is really good and she's selling it she pulls Trigon out and in a previous scene on Starfire's ship she has a hologram depiction of Trigon and he looks like a hell knight from the Doom series and so you're expecting something like that when Raven is pulling out Trigon and instead you have just 
a white guy in a black suit. And he's kind of like the middle-aged sort of character you would see on a CW show. Like very kind of thin and slick back hair. And it's just so hilarious to disconnect. Like, did they run out of budget? Are we going to see Trigon look threatening? Or is he going to stay this middle-aged white guy the entire rest of the series? Because it does seem like they're setting up Trigon to be the meta villain of this series. Like, they mentioned that the only way to get rid of Trigon is for Raven to undergo a lot of trials and tribulations and a quest. Like, what is essentially a quest. Which I don't think they're going to be able to fit in in one last finale so i feel like we're going to be stuck with trigon for a while and that's the reason they cast this nondescript kind of unintimidating uncharismatic white guy as trigon so it's fucking hilarious just like what you're setting up and then like oh wait it's this guy who looks like the hallmark movie of the week love interest and i think that raven's actress does carry a lot of this moment like she is selling it and her mother has that weird dispassionate disconnected sort of personality and attitude throughout the episode that carries her role and her dialogue too like she just stabs a cop through the gut at one point and it's really kind of eerie you can see it so yeah this is all done relatively well. What does it for me though? What pushes it over the top into something that I am totally 100% for is when Dick is being told all of this by Starfire. His only reaction is fuck because that's what I love. That's what I like about Bright. That's what I like about Overlord. That's what I like about From Dusk Till Dawn. When you have these two disparate sort of genres being collide together, what I really look for is the reaction from characters from side one to the outlandishness of side two and this doesn't disappoint like you have robin an ostensibly human character who is now sort of being rushed in to this oh yeah you have to go up against satan and his demonic cult and the person that you're kind of taking in as a surrogate little sister slash daughter kind of figure for yourself is someone who is in deep peril and already with satan already and he's like fuck and then at the very end of the episode he rushes into whatever kind of hellscape you know and i love it i love it i love that shit it just gets me charged up like hell yeah robin you go try and fight satan in a 45 minute finale that probably won't solve anything but i am rooting for you every step of the way so yeah it was a really entertaining episode and you get to see donna troy actually flip someone with her lasso so that was a plus too the only thing i don't like about this and it's only intimation is that once again they're trying to sell like there's some sort of budding thing between beast boy and raven despite the fact like i said last week she is clearly 13 years old and he is clearly early to mid 20s but then you have a point where trigon says don't worry i'll get my full powers and so will she when her heart is broken and then we get a pan over to beast boy and raven talking on a bench together and it's like please don't do this but i hope that doesn't happen fingers crossed yeah i enjoyed this episode a lot more in the last couple two thumbs up all right so that's it for what i watched this week and well i guess that leaves one more thing here we go with listener questions and i just want to thank everyone for sending in questions this week and we have two this week and i can't wait to just really dig into them the first one comes from aki cat on twitter and their question is do I think that comic book superheroes from the big two should change and grow over time, passing on their mantle to their younger generation and retire? Or do I prefer them staying static either through sliding timescale or crisis? And that's kind of a really tricky question, honestly. I think it would be on a case-by-case basis. Like someone like The Flash, through no fault of its own, sort of really skewed really hard into the angle that the flash is all about family you have barry who has a secondary father figure in jay mantle is passed then you have wally whose secondary father figure 
is found in Barry Mantle Pass. So you have that sort of ingrained over time, obviously it was developed and implemented legacy for the Flash. So that's something where you can see like maybe Bart gets the mantle or Wally's twins get the mantle, stuff like that, because it just makes sense. With Batman, I don't really think that Batman should ever not be Bruce Wayne because Dick being Batman, it's an interesting thing to do, but I think that Dick striking out on his own only because Batman had become known for getting all these Robins it just makes it a lot less impressive and engaging for him to become Batman because there's already a lot of fluidity there. Dick becoming Nightwing that's a lot more engaging because like Bruce he's striking out on his own and I mean overall I don't really see the point in having to make it such strict thing we're like okay now they're all heroes Let's say goodbye to the older heroes. I think they always fear like the heroes of now are going to end up like the JSA. They have series and team titles that keep getting canceled and are sort of ignored more or less. And no one wants to see that happen. And so it's a question that I don't think really has an answer. As long as the comics were still good, as long as the comics were still engaging and as long as the characters were still treated and written with respect, then, you know, it'd be all copacetic. I don't really have a preference. I just want the comics to be entertaining. But thank you for that question, Aki Cat. It was really interesting and there's just so much to go into it but like I said I don't think that there is any set way to go about it so hope I answered it to some semblance of your satisfaction I'm really grateful for the question our second question comes from the incomparable Medea and their question is what are the best or my favorite Christmas specials that I have read and well yeah I'm gonna pick a couple from each because there's a lot that comes to mind some honest to god answers and some just sentimental slash jokingly but let's start off with the honest to god answers first things first I have to say Hitman the Hitman Christmas issue the one where a radioactive Santa Claus monster comes to life and it's told entirely through Christmas time homaging rhyme is brilliant and it's awesome and it's hilarious and just the rhymes themselves which try and imbue christmas time terminology and idioms with the crass and really sort of lewd nature of hitman is really worth it and it's one of garfennis's best things he ever written for dc hands down after that the final night issue of the flash now the flash especially during wally's tenure had some of the best christmas issues of all time now they had like three solid ones in a row i'm like why does the flash always have such great christmas issues now my favorite one is from the final night and it has wally and jay going around trying to save people and it's just a nice comfortable issue with lots of snow and it's very dramatic and it's just very engaging and gripping and it's all about heroism and giving back and charity and actually doing something to make a difference and i love it so if you can track down the issue check it out too it's really great another thing that comes to mind is the tick yule log specials now they're not all hits but they do have some fun little short stories in them and one of my favorites from i think the third or second yuletide special is this one where chairface chippendale is just completely drunk out of his gourd and is just rambling around in the snow about all his failures it's something that's just so bitingly the tick just the ridiculous nature of the series and the stuff that's going on in it and last but not least are the archie double digest winter edition i don't know if they still make him i haven't had one in a long time but overall they do have some nice kickers in them and it's nice to have something comfortable to read when it's snowing outside or when it's cold outside definitely check those out too if you can find one now for my more sentimental or joking answers which would be serenity if you're on co during the winter time it's a christmas tradition to run serenity which is a christian manga and it's about the worst group of human beings you'll ever see and apparently it was the entire point of the series but no one knew about it until someone asked the creator after it was canceled wow 
just the feeling of waking up on Christmas morning and seeing it on Co and reading along with a bunch of people who are either experiencing it for the first time or are really just in it for the tradition of it. It just has a lot of community spirit and I really like it. Similarly, we have Santa Corp, which has been done on December 1st for the last couple of times on Co as well in the Christmas Center Threads. And it's about all the Santas of the world coming together to fight a greater threat. It's ludicrous. It is ridiculous. It's probably written terribly but again it's just fun to rip into with a lot of people so yeah those two as well and yeah those would be my favorite christmas comics and specials and what have you and i hope that they were fun as well if you've read some of them or if you haven't then please go check them out and i'm talking to everyone listening to this because i think that they could brighten your day if you're really into the mood for them thank you for that question Medea. i was actually going to ask this question next week for the general christmas special occasion but i guess you beat me to it but it was fun anyway, and I'm really glad. I might ask that question later for next week anyways. So thank you, and I had fun answering it, and I hope I answered it to the fullness of your satisfaction. So, so grateful. And I guess that's it. Thank you both for your questions, and I want to thank everyone who has ever sent in questions, who has ever sent in feedback or comments or spurred the show. It means so much to me, and we're halfway through December. Christmas is almost here, and I just want to wish you all happy holidays again. It's getting colder, it's getting darker, but I'm so grateful for everything i'm grateful for you and all the listeners and everyone that i come into contact through this it's it's so humbling and i hope that you will have a safe wonderful december as always i would like to give a shout out to the cover artists for this series you can find them on twitter at d-o-t-e-m-c-e-e they do great work please check them out as always i want to give a great thanks and see you again next week hope you have a good one